Well, hello, everyone. It is Thursday, April the 27th. My name is JB with Not By Works Ministries, and uh, back by popular demand today is our uh, wonderful friend and colleague, Mark Fontecchio. I introduced him last week and uh, just got such a great response. I thought we'd try to do this again, and we'll continue to have him on uh, periodically. But Mark and I go way back, um, known each other for some 20 years or so, and uh, we collaborated on a book uh, called What Lies Ahead, which is an eschatology textbook, basically. It's called What Lies Ahead, uh, A Biblical Overview of the End Times. Uh, that came out several years ago, and it is really a sort of a, a turnkey look at what the Bible has to say about uh, the return of the Lord. And it starts in Genesis and goes all the way through Revelation and really uh, kind of outlines God's plan of the ages. And we've been really pleased with uh, how well that book has uh, done over the years. Uh, I go back to it again and again. It's used in uh, you know variety of contexts as a as a textbook, and it's really a user friendly way to understand Bible prophecy. Not a lot of technical jargon, not a lot of academic language. It's just intended to be able to be used both by you know the serious eschatology student as well as just the layperson who wants to know what the Bible has to say about the return of the Lord. So we're going to be talking today uh, on the program about. Uh, eschatology, the study of the end times. And I wanted to pitch that book a little bit and just encourage you to check it out. So uh, you can go to notbyworks.org slash what lies ahead, all one word, notbyworks.org slash what lies ahead. And that's where you'll find uh, uh, the details about uh, the book. And you can go ahead and purchase it if you'd like. Uh, but uh, in the meantime, just want to introduce uh, Mark. Uh, one of the passages of Scripture that he and I put as an inscription at the beginning of the book is from uh, Paul's letter to Titus. It's Titus chapter 2, verse 13. This will be a, a familiar verse to those of you who have a love for Bible prophecy. But Paul says, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And that's uh, one of many references in the New Testament to the rapture. Uh, so you'll often hear us refer to the rapture as the blessed hope. And boy, in times like these, if there ever was a need to focus on our blessed hope and the return of the Lord to rescue us from this present evil age, uh, today is the day. And so um, we saved the best for last this week. You know, we've got a couple of very powerful podcasts that we posted Tuesday and Wednesday of this week. You can check out my Prophecy Night uh, video, uh, 90 minutes of discussion about manifestations of evil spirits and what that looks like today and how that's ramping up in these end times. And then uh, yesterday was our weekly world events update with Randy. Uh, and, and it was, as usual, uh, it did not disappoint. Uh, lots of uh, things going on in this world that uh, we need to know about and run through the grid of Scripture. But today, uh, again, the best for last. My friend Mark is with us to talk about uh, what we're calling end times non-negotiables. End times non-negotiables. In other words, you know, in times like these, there has been really a, an upsurge in interest in end times prophecy. People more than ever before want to know how current events might be setting the stage for the end of the age, for the return of the Lord. And so uh, as I've traveled uh, the last several years and spoken at uh, large gatherings and conferences and, and shared the stage with various uh, Bible prophecy teachers, uh, I'm just noticing that this audience in many ways is growing, uh, but it comes from a wide variety of theological perspectives. And so I thought it would be good to kind of share with you what we at Not By Works uh, really believe are some key 
doctrinal non-negotiables when it comes to the end times. You know, there is plenty of areas where there are plenty of areas where we might uh, be open to, you know, debate. And we say, hey, this good scholars disagree on this. We're not exactly sure, for example, when the battle of Gog and Magog might happen. Is it before the rapture? Is it after the rapture? Is it before the tribulation? Is it during the tribulation? You know, who are the two witnesses that are mentioned in Revelation? Uh, where exactly do the trumpet judgments fit? Are they in the first half of the tribulation or the second half of the tribulation? Lots of areas where the Bible doesn't give us the exact answers. It kind of gives us a general framework, and then we kind of piece it together. And we might have our studied opinions about, you know, the answers to these questions. Uh, and so there's room for disagreement. But there are also some areas of Bible prophecy that are not open for debate. Uh, and we wanted you to know, based on what we relate in our book, What Lies Ahead, what are some of these end times non-negotiables? And uh, so we start in the book by kind of laying the foundation with uh, some of the distinctions between the broad views on the end times, because there are some Bible, you know, teachers that really have no interest in the end times. They, they, they're, you know, their chapter on that subject would basically have one page and one sentence. Jesus comes back, done. You know, that's all they really care to say about the matter. Uh, and they get to that point because they have a, a different way of handling Scripture. They do not handle the Scripture correctly. Their Bible study method is off. And so we spend some time in the opening chapter uh, of uh, our book, chapter one or two, I think it is, kind of laying the foundation uh, hermeneutically, it's called. And so, Mark, welcome back to the program. Uh, really uh, ex you know, excited to have you back on. Like I said, we got a great response last week and appreciate you making time for us again. Mark, as you, if you recall from last week, we mentioned he's up in Alaska. And so uh, coming to us all the way from uh, from Alaska. Welcome back, Mark. JB, it's such a great, great opportunity. Thank you for uh, allowing me to come back on. And um, I'm just honored to be always a big fan of yours and a big fan of Not By Works Ministries. So thank you for having me on, brother. Hey, you bet. It's The pleasure is all ours. And um, so, yeah, you know, as I, I kind of teased you a little bit a couple of days ago with what we might want to talk about today. And so I know you've been putting some thought into it, but what in your mind are some areas of end times Bible prophecy that we really need to stand firm on? And, and when, how do you arrive at these uh, at this uh, list of non-negotiables? Well, I think this is a, a very important topic because what I see, JB, is I see Christians all across this country starting to say, what's happening to my church? Why is my church starting to teach things that are different from the historic faith that was once handed down to the saints? And so Christians are kind of wrestling and they're starting to notice a difference, but maybe they can't put their finger on it. Maybe they can't figure out why is my church starting to teach something that's different from what I grew up with or from what I'm used to studying in the Bible. Um, you know, it's funny. We just had this happen about a year and a half ago. We had a new family that came to our church up here in Alaska. And now the gentleman is a, is a good friend. I'm not going to name the name of the church, but he couldn't figure out why their new pastor was teaching something completely different. And it boils down to, and I know it sounds cliche, and I know it sounds elementary, but we have to start with our hermeneutic. We have to start with how we study the Bible. Um, and of course, we would hold to the grammatical, historical, literal method of interpretation, which just simply means, don't you think that if a loving God in heaven loved us enough to communicate with us, 
that he would want to write it down in a language that we could understand using the normal rules of language and a method that we could understand and apply. Uh, but there's so many today that are running around with this allegorical interpretation or they're looking for the deeper hidden meaning. Um, you know, a rock really isn't a rock. It's <laughs> are all these different things. And so they're looking into things beyond what the words of scripture testify. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. What a great point. In fact, I got a letter. Uh, I get quite a bit of mail, and I and 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 interestingly enough, we get quite a bit of mail from people that are in prison. And uh, so I got I have several ongoing correspondences with uh, some inmates, uh, but this one was a first time letter, and it was a very lengthy letter, handwritten, front and back. Uh, I think it was about six or eight pages, so that'd be twelve or sixteen pages. But anyway, he got into sort of this symbolic, mystical approach to scripture, and he actually even charted out a uh, cryptology code where, you know, words or uh, letters of the alphabet meant certain numbers, and then he tried to tried to interpret certain passages that way. And I haven't had the chance to write him back, but I do intend to write him a really sweet letter, but it's an example of really, uh, you know, coming at scripture uh, from an allegorical or mystical a spiritual approach rather than letting the words on the page mean what they say. And so I love the way you said that, you know, a loving God is not going to communicate in some kind of mystical way to us where we've got to crack the code. He's going to tell us in plain, normal language. And of course, the Bible was written over a period of 1500 years by 40 different human authors in three different languages. Uh, when the quill hit the sheepskin, it started out in Hebrew, the language of the Jewish people, as Moses began to reveal the special revelation of God uh, through the first five books of the Bible. And then, of course, the prophets of old were also writing in Hebrew until you get to the Babylonian exile. And then there are a few portions of scripture that were written in Aramaic, which had become the common language of the Jewish people at that time. And then, of course, the New Testament was written entirely in Greek, uh, Koine Greek, the common language of the Greco-Roman Empire at that time. But we've then translated those original manuscripts into uh, in, in our case, English, because we speak English. And so that's where we get a lot of our modern English uh, translations of the Bible. But either way, language, no matter what language it was originally written in, has some certain fundamental rules to follow, rules of grammar and syntax. It's not code language where we have to read a sentence and then wonder, well, what in the world does that mean? Let me decode it. No, it's written in a plain, normal, as you said, literal, grammatical, historical sense. So tell us how hermeneutics plays a role in understanding end times Bible prophecy. Well, it, it plays a big role because, um, you know, it's funny. One of the things that I, I tell people when they first come to our church up here in Alaska is I'll say, words have meaning, words have meaning, words have meaning. And after they've been coming for a month or two, then I begin to introduce them to the phrase, Greek words have meaning, Hebrew words have meaning. <laughs> and I'm not saying everybody's got to know fluently both languages, but, you know, with the study resources that are available today, it's not that hard uh, to be able to pick up a word study. And I think if if most Christians can do a word study, uh, they can get about 99.9% of the way there on understanding a lot of what's taking place. But uh, to, to answer your question, JB, you know, it, those that would look towards an allegorical interpretation, it, it just baffles my mind how they leave. Um, and it's not to criticize or attack, but, um, you know, our teaching is public, so we expect it to stand up and, and, and same thing as those that we're talking about. When they, when they take an allegorical uh, method of interpretation, 
they would look back at the, all of the prophecies of Christ regarding his first coming and say they were fulfilled absolutely literally. But then when they get to the second coming, it just is amazing how their brains just kind of turn into into in a mystical understanding, like you said, of you, of that. You started you started to say their brains turn into mush. I, know I started well to, know, but, but then you realize, <laughs> you know what? Back. This is not by Works Ministries. We have to be gracious, and so I'm try- yeah, I'm trying to take <laughs> thoughts captive. <laughs> no, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, but why is it? There's more prophecies about the second coming of Christ than there is about the first. And if Christ came literally the first time, wouldn't you expect him to come literally the second time? Um, so and it and it just comes back to the, the move today to read the New Testament back into the Old Testament instead of looking at that progress of revelation where God kind of revealed you know, the, the first books of the Bible first and built upon it and, and kept giving us that progress of revelation. Yeah, great point. So the progress of revelation is a foundational principle of Bible interpretation. And that basically that principle of the progressive revelation means that later revelation of God cannot uh, fundamentally change the meaning of earlier revelation. So when God said something to the people Uh, of old, uh, the the Jewish people in the Old Testament, he meant what he said. And for him to come around, you know, in some cases, a thousand years later, uh, and change the meaning of it with the New Testament would mean that he was disingenuous to the original audience. And it would also mean that there was no way possible for them to have accurately understood what he was saying to them because they weren't around a thousand years later. So, you know, very, very important principle. And that really, in the terms of end times Bible prophecy, uh, really rises to the fore when it comes to the relationship between Israel and the church. Because if you uh, don't properly understand the Old Testament, then you're going to come along and you're going to think that the church is the new Israel, that the kingdom is not literal with brick and mortar temples and cr- uh, thrones and crowns and boundaries geographically, but rather you're going to erroneously conclude that the kingdom is within us and that it's some spiritual mystical kingdom where Christ is reigning in and through the church today. And uh, so explain to us, uh, you know, as we talk about in the book, what lies ahead. And by the way, don't forget, you can go to uh uh, notbyworks.org slash what lies ahead, all one word. We'll also put a banner up on our uh, homepage of Not By Works so you can check it out. But I just, you know, I'm pretty proud of, of that uh, book, not in a prideful, you know, fleshly sense, but in the sense that, you know, the Lord's using it. It really does lay out the case for a dispensational pre-tribulational overview of scripture. And it addresses all the, you know, objections. And many of them are tired old objections and attempts to debunk uh, the pre-tribulational view. Um, But anyway, explain to us how, you know, if you don't have a proper hermeneutic, it's going to lead you to confuse the relationship between Israel and the church. Well, let's go back to my uh, case study I was talking about, about our our friend here that came from a different church that had that new pastor that I was talking about about a year and a half ago, Um, that that he couldn't understand why that pastor was coming along. He was teaching through the book of Genesis, and he couldn't understand when he started getting to the promises of land for the nation of Israel. He couldn't understand why this pastor was saying, well, this really applies to all of us now, that. Mm -hmm. geographically this is all of us and then he brought in wokeism um into the church uh because through this because 
if the church is now Israel, well, you know, words don't have meaning anymore. Going back to our earlier saying, you can make anything say anything. And it brought in that teaching. So it's it's fundamental that we have to start with that hermeneutic and it applies. And then you start looking at the church is not Israel. Israel's not the church. We can understand, as you pointed out so eloquently, we can understand exactly what's meant in the Old Testament when he's referring to the nation of Israel. And we can understand that in the New Testament because the Bible uses different terms. And we talk about this in the book, but no one ever one time in the writings of the early church up until 160 AD ever came up with this idea that the church is now Israel and Israel is the church. And who was that? That was Origen, right? Uh, not, I don't think that, and I'm not sure that, uh, who was the first, I don't quite remember that off the top of my head. Yeah. No, so, origin, yeah. Yeah. Origen, you know, kind of is known as the father of allegorical hermeneutics. I think he was a little bit later than that maybe, yep. but then of course, by the time Augustine comes around in the fourth century or so, uh, his book city of God really had a profound impact on the early church and, 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 and really, you know, as, although we are certainly thankful for a lot of what Augustine uh, said and wrote, he really led us astray there by suggesting that the kingdom was the spiritualized metaphor and that it's not that, that he's, it's not going to come back. I mean, after all, it had been several centuries by the time he came around and the promise of the return of Christ hadn't happened yet. So as hope began to wane, people began uh, misinterpreting scripture and thinking, well, maybe we missed something. Maybe kingdom doesn't really mean kingdom and, you know, throne doesn't really mean throne and all of that. And so they started creating this, especially with the rise of Roman Catholicism uh, in the Middle Ages, uh, you know, uh, casting itself as the kingdom and so forth. It really led the church astray. But thankfully, uh, there was always a remnant in every age. And I remember in my PhD studies having to document how in every century of the church age, there is written historical evidence that at least a remnant believed in a two-phased return of Christ, once for the church, and once for, to establish his earthly kingdom. And uh, so those of those who are out there that suggest that the doctrine of the rapture is a is a new or recent belief are just not doing their homework. They're embarrassingly wrong on that issue. The fact of the matter is the Bible teaches the rapture, as we're going to talk about next. Uh, it's very clearly taught in Scripture. In fact, it's a biblical word, the word harpazo, translated by Jerome into Latin as rapire, or, or, which is where we get the word rapture from. Uh, so it's definitely a biblical doctrine. It's been taught throughout church history. It became much more uh, popular. There was a resurgence of interest in this biblical doctrine after the Reformation, and particularly after uh, you know the uh, the dawn of modern English translations, and people began to read the Bible for themselves and so forth uh, after the printing press, for example. But uh, nevertheless, uh, you know, it all comes down to hermeneutics. And so, as we talked today, talking today about with Mark Fontecchio. By the way, I failed to mention his. Uh, uh, how you can get a hold of him. I'm a terrible host, Mark, but uh, returntotheword.com. Returntotheword.com is his ministry. He's also the pastor at Wasilla, uh, at Pioneer Baptist Church in Wasilla. Uh, my wife and I have had the opportunity to go up there and hope to get back up there again uh, to speak at his church. It's uh, one of our favorite places in Alaska to go and uh, to minister. Um, but anyway, uh, check him out at returntotheword.com. But uh, Mark, uh, you know, what else, as we talk about these uh, non-negotiables in end times prophecy, once you start with hermeneutics, where does that lead you in terms of, you know, conclusions that we can hold 
firmly and dogmatically. Well, let me just say one one more thing, if I could, just about the church in Israel. We have to say that nowhere in the New Testament does the church ever identified as Israel, and Israel's never identified as the church. <clears throat> Excuse me. So if that's such a key teaching, um, why is it never mentioned in the New Testament? Wouldn't you think, going back to words have meaning, that if Paul was going to say, you know, that's what it means, he would tell us this. It's never yeah. identified. Yeah, and if, you know, that's the point. Words do have meaning, but if if you get to make up what you think the words mean, then you can make those words mean anything you want. And that's what liberals, and I'm not suggesting that, you know, Bible teachers who have a different view on eschatology are liberal per se, but let's just take it to the extreme. Liberals are make, using the same hermeneutical error to defend, for example, the, uh, you know, legitimacy of homosexuality and, you know, when the Bible talks about how it's, you know, aberrant behavior for a male to lie with a male or a female to lie with a female. They say, oh, that's just talking about, you know, young males, and it's talking about pedophilia or something like that. Well, that's not at all what the words mean, and everybody knows it if you do your homework. That's what lexicons are for, which study the history and usage of words in their setting, in their uh, culture. Um, and so, uh, you know, we call those synchronic word studies, uh, studies that are done within a, within the time period in which they were used. So it's not a fact in dispute, but these, you know, when you when you can make the words mean whatever you want, I mean, you can go in and change the meaning of scripture. And that's uh, exactly what some perhaps well-intentioned Bible teachers have done when it comes to the church in Israel. They take New Testament references to the church and they say, oh, that must be kind of got the new people of God, and, and therefore all of the promises that are very plainly made to the nation of Israel, the house of Judah, the house of Israel, the northern kingdom, the southern kingdom, when they see those references in the Old Testament, as you said a few moments ago, they read the New Testament back into the Old Testament and say, oh, well, that's talking about the church. Therefore, you and I, Mark, they would say, are the recipients of these uh, blessings. The kingdom is for us today, but that's not the case. And, you know, that's such an excellent point, JB, because um, as you know, when when my family and I first moved up to Alaska about 10 years ago, uh, the first five years or so, I wasn't looking to pastor a church. I was doing just conferences, flying back and forth, and I wasn't looking to pastor a church, but it put me in the awkward position of, well, trying to ask this very question right here that we're discussing today. What are these essentials? And I was trying to hammer out where my family and I could go to church. And one of the things that for me, I will die on this, that this this is a hill I will die on, is that the church is, is not experiencing the kingdom right now. This is not the kingdom. And the kingdom is still yet future. A literal earthly kingdom is still coming. And it, it's it's a little frightening to me how many churches are teaching that this is the kingdom now. It is a little frightening to that end, but um, scripture is just abundantly clear and abundantly obvious on this point. Um, you know, and, and certainly we, we document a lot of that uh, in, in, in our book, but I'll tell you, um, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, 50, he said, now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Flesh and blood cannot inherit. And I was actually, I was teaching, uh, this is about eight or nine years ago, I was teaching at a, a Baptist church up here, and the pastor was not clear on this point. And when I mentioned that verse, he sat in the front pew with his Bible open, just like a life-shattering truth had been hit upon right there. So it, it, is, a, it is a 
uh, a very important um, teaching of scripture that part of the beautiful promise that we will have resurrected bodies as believers in the church age, we'll be able to experience those resurrected bodies in the kingdom and we'll be able to rule and reign with Christ. And, you know, but covenant theology today teaches there is no earthly kingdom. Um, so they, they would say, well, it's, it's earthly, but it's kind of that spiritual kingdom. Now I got to tell you, JB, if this is the best, if this is the kingdom now, I want a refund. Um, because I see some, <laughs> I see some serious problems with this being the kingdom now. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, it's so funny. You know, you and I, you and I have known each other for so long. It's kind of scary that I, I think sometimes we're beginning to read each other's minds because literally, as you're talking, I'm calling up in my Bible on on my computer screen here, First Corinthians 15. <laughs> uh, but I was actually thinking of. A, a passage, a verse earlier in that passage, uh, you talked about how flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. I think that's down in verse 50-ish. Um, yeah. But uh, I, you said where it was, but I was ignoring you because I was reading something else in the Bible at the time. I tuned you out. But uh, anyway, uh, I was looking at 1 Corinthians 15, 24, where we find out that it's not until the end of this age that God delivers the kingdom, uh, you know, or Christ delivers the kingdom to God the Father and puts an end to all rule and all authority and power. So, I mean, there are passages in the New Testament that make it clear that the kingdom is not now, you know, and it, of course, as you said, there's never a passage that says the kingdom is now. Uh, right. And by contrast, there are passages that speak of it in a future tense. In fact, another one that comes to my mind is Hebrews uh, chapter two, where the whole point of the writer of the book of Hebrews is to encourage first century Jewish Christians, these are Jews that had believed in Christ and become born again, uh, that they need to hang on even in the midst of suffering because the world to come is much better. And he he frequently challenges them to look forward to the kingdom. He says, uh, for example, in Hebrews 2, 5, he has not put the world to come of which we speak. Well, that world is a world of the eternal kingdom, the eternal state, the new heavens and the new earth when when Christ makes all things new. So uh, absolutely, uh, to me, that's a non-negotiable. That would be on my list Agreed. of times non-negotiables that the kingdom is yet future. The church serves a special purpose in God's plan of the ages. In fact, uh, by the way, I just wrote an article uh, yesterday. Yeah, yesterday. It's posted at Not By Works as well called Why America Needs the Church. And like all of my weekly devotionals, uh, it's fairly short and, and to the point. But in that article, I explain uh, some of the biblical purposes for the church in this present age. And we're not here to inaugurate the kingdom. Uh, that's God's job. And uh, he's going to do that when Christ comes back and inaugurates the kingdom in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, literal fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. But we do have a job to do, but we're not part of the the promised kingdom that is yet to come. We will be part of that kingdom when it comes. We're going to be ruling and reigning with Christ, but we're not, uh, you know, inaugurating that kingdom today. Well, JB, too, I mean, just for those that are struggling out there, because I know, you know, one of the things that bothers me so much is I think of Christians that are out there that are hearing on the Christian radio stations or on podcasts or on YouTube or in their church that this is the kingdom. They're getting bombarded with this message. But going back to what we said before, words have meaning. God was trying to communicate to us in his love. He's he's not trying to be um, making us hunt and peck and try to, you know, he's he's wanting us to understand. 
and and we can go to two passages that we actually cite in the book. One would be, and we we cite a whole bunch more than this in the book, but um, Jesus told that centurion in Matthew eight eleven. He said, "And I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Where in the kingdom of heaven has ask yourself, has that happened? Hmm. You know, has that happened? If that hasn't happened, then this isn't the kingdom." Or again, in Matthew 19, which you and I are um, famously in love with the, the book of Matthew, just because of the eschatology that is present in that beautiful book. But remember, Peter asked Jesus that bold question in Matthew 19, 27. Uh, and he says, you know, we followed you, Jesus. And, the, and, and what does that leave us with? And, and then the Lord responded in the very next verse. And he says, Assuredly, I say to you that in the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me will also sit on the 12 tribes, our 12 thrones, excuse me, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Again, we ask ourselves, has that happened? And, and we, we, don't, we don't see that happening. So um, I, I just, I want to encourage believers to just look at the scriptures, especially to read the book of Matthew. Um, and as they're going through the New Testament, see how much the disciples were looking forward to the coming kingdom and look how much the, the scriptures talk about this coming future kingdom. Yeah, and I've talked about this, uh, you know, at length in various contexts, but I think we have a good uh, written summary of it in the book. But so many references in the New Testament, if he's not speaking of a literal future kingdom, it would be, you know, disingenuous. I talked about how it would be disingenuous to the Old Testament recipients of recipients of Scripture, but in the New Testament as well. For example, when Jesus told the disciples they're going to rule on 12 thrones with him, I think they took that literally, right? Literally. I mean, I think that, you know, that was, they really, they understood, being Jews, they understood the concept of a kingdom and a temple and a throne and various rulerships and positions of authority. And so uh, they weren't thinking of that metaphorically at all. And uh, and then, of course, uh, at the Mount of Ascension, after Christ's resurrection, remember he was resurrected and they appeared for 40 days uh, to uh, thousands of people, literally. And then finally, he goes uh, up to sit at the right hand of the throne of God, where he is today waiting to return and take the earthly throne for him. But at that point, the disciples were still, you know, keenly interested in the kingdom. And uh, they asked, when when will the kingdom come? Are you at this time going to restore your kingdom to Israel? Uh, Acts 1.11. And, uh, and then that, that would have been the perfect time for Jesus to dispel the notion of a literal earthly kingdom. But he didn't do that. He affirmed the reality of a future kingdom, but he just said, it's not for you to know the times and the seasons. In other words, be patient, it'll come someday. And now we've been waiting for 2,000 years. Um, the disciples, of course, are with the Lord, as are all believers who have died, uh, and they'll come back with Christ at the rapture. Um, and, uh, in, you know, it's, at some point, uh, we will be reunited with them. But the kingdom promise has not been forsaken. We can still look forward to a future earthly kingdom. So, um, let's let's shift gears now into you know with that foundation how important it is to understand the distinction between Israel and the church and the the reality of a literal future earthly kingdom where Christ is going to reign and rule with a rod of iron. Uh, what are some other areas of of eschatology that you would really um, you know pin your hat on? I mean, you would say this I, is this is important. I would I would build right off of that, and this is actually something I've told our adult kids. Um, our little one is, it's a little bit beyond her yet. So, but the adult kids, they know this, 
I would say not only is there a coming uh, kingdom, but the second coming of Christ. Let's talk about that, that the second coming of Christ is before the millennium. I think that's foundational. I, I think if a Christian is not in a church that has that teaching, I would really look for a church that has that teaching. I think that is a very important principle. Um, and, and you see that just in Revelation 19 and 20. I mean, Revelation 19 is very obviously about the second coming of Christ. I mean, and then and then you get to uh, Revelation 20, verse four. That's very clear that that's about the 1000 year reign of Christ. And six times in the first seven verses of the book of Revelation um, in 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 chapter 20, the new King James mentions a thousand years, a thousand years, a thousand years, you know. And so you just look from Revelation 19 to Revelation 20, you see this, this second coming of Christ, very important teaching. Um, and this was, let's not forget, JB, this was the teaching of the early church, which was premillennialism is what we would call it now, but it was known by a different name. It was known as Kiliism, but you can find many historical examples where they taught about this literal return of Christ to establish his kingdom and that he was coming back before the 1000 year reign, um, which would lead to the eternal state. So I, I would camp out on that one. I would fall on my sword on that, that doctrine there. So, so far we've got, uh, we're talking with Mark Fontecchio from return to the word. We're talking about end times, non-negotiables. What are some views within end times Bible prophecy that are foundational and uh, really uh, pretty clear in Scripture and not open for debate. We've, we've talked about the distinction between Israel and the church. We've talked about uh, the literal future earthly kingdom. And now Mark has mentioned uh, the fact that the second coming happens prior to the millennium. So that's where the phrase premillennial theology comes from. The second coming happens first. Christ comes back to inaugurate and establish the earthly kingdom. And then, uh, you know, at the end of the thousand year millennium, that's when uh, the old earth is destroyed and uh, Christ, uh, God recreates the, the new heavens and the new earth. So for those who may not be uh, familiar, explain uh, the term millennium in a little more detail. What do we mean by that? Well, we we mean millennium, 1,000 years. And so what we, we um, see in Scripture is this teaching that Christ will rule from, from Jerusalem. He will rule for 1,000 years. It will be uh, on the old earth, and that it will be a renewed old earth after his second coming. Now, this is after the tribulation. So to keep the chronological uh, flow going in the proper order, you know, first we we have the rapture of the church, then we have the seven-year tribulation, then we have the second coming of Christ, and after the second coming of Christ, um, I think Daniel indicates there's going to be a little bit of time, a few few months maybe, um, where he's establishing his kingdom. We're going to have the sheep and goat judgment in Matthew 25, and um, then from there, we, we move into the 1,000 years and after that, um, we have one final rebellion of Satan, which is actually talked about in Revelation 20, and then we get to the eternal state. Amen. So uh, what would you say is another uh, non-negotiable? I've got one that I, I might throw in, but I have a feeling you're going to go there, so I'll give you, uh, give you the first uh, chance here. What's the next on your list of end times non-negotiables? Well, 
I I actually I actually have a, a, a lot and um, some of it. <laughs> it's amazing. You know, most people would say, uh, are these really all non-negotiables? Yeah, they're really that yeah. plainly taught in scripture. That's kind of why we call them non-negotiables. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, for some people, the whole subject of end times is what they would consider, quote, non-essential. And I don't know about you, but I, I really hate that distinction where essentially in this in these days of tolerance and, you know, wokeism, most churches, you know, their doctrinal statement basically is narrowed down and whittled away to, I believe there's a God, and that's about it. And everything else, they're like, oh, that's not essential. We, we just want to agree to disagree. It doesn't really matter. Well, I think end times... Theology is very clear in Scripture. As people have heard me say for years, it constitutes 16% uh, unfulfilled end times prophecy, constitutes roughly 16% of the Bible. So it's it's a very important doctrine. And so don't apologize for having a longer than usual list of non-negotiables, because I'm right there with you, brother. Yeah, well, it, it is important. And, you know, some would look at um, dispensations. You know, we talked briefly about um, hermeneutic, but some would say, well, is that really an eschatology? Is that really an end times view? I, I think dispensationalism does speak right to the to the issue that it is important um, versus covenant theology, because we're, we're looking at different phases of God's program, different, you know, we can see it. I always tell people, uh, I ask this question from the pulpit, did God command you to, you know, build a boat? and and take many years now i like a boat i have a boat um angie hasn't told me to build one and live on it for a year but um <laughs> he has <laughs> um, it may seem like my to my wife that we've spent a year on my boat but we we haven't in fact um <laughs> but you know there's no doubt that it's different now um god didn't command me to live in a in a garden i love my garden i have a garden i do um enjoy gardening but uh i God hasn't commanded me to live in a garden and and walk around. Um, sorry, JB, walk around naked. Um, he hasn't. <laughs> <laughs> Thank the Lord for that. Yeah, Nobody praise, wants that. Praise God. Yeah. And and so I ask people just simply this: you know, has God commanded you any of these things? And then they say, well, no. Well, then you're a dispensationalist. Yeah. Then you're a dispensationalist. And how that comes back is that affects directly what we're talking about, about the tribulation and about the millennium, um, about so the let's, different programs. Let's, yeah, I'm going to let you kind of explain the difference between dispensational and covenant theology, but let me clarify for some of our listeners uh, what the term dispensational means. First of all, it's a biblical term, comes right out of scriptures in the New Testament. It's the Greek word oikonomos. It means economy or stewardship. And and you did an excellent job there, notwithstanding your you know connection to a Adam and Eve walking naked in the garden. That was that was a little much. Uh, nobody should have to think in those terms. But anyway, no, you're right. We weren't commanded to live in a garden. We weren't con commanded to tend the garden. We weren't commanded to build a boat. Uh, if you didn't bring a, a goat with you to sacrifice on the altar Sunday at church, then you're a dispensationalist because clearly the 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 rules of engagement, not not the method of salvation, that's the same for everyone from Adam forward. Every human being is born dead in his trespasses and sins since Adam. We're all sons of Adam, uh, Romans chapter five, and we're all saved the same way by grace through faith, by trusting uh, today in Jesus Christ, the Son of God who died and rose again for our sins. That's the only way anyone can be rescued from the penalty of sin, which is eternal 
life in a literal place of torment called hell. So we're not talking here about different ways of salvation, but we're talking about the fact that God interacts with mankind differently and provides different uh, rules of engagement, different ways of interacting with him. So we come from a dispensational understanding of Scripture. Again, that's Ephesians 3. Um, some people come from a covenant understanding of Scripture, where they, again, practice allegorical hermeneutics. They see the church in Israel as the same thing, no distinction. They don't look at the plain, literal, normal meaning of words in their context, all of the things we've been talking about. So elaborate on that a bit, the distinction between dispensationalism and covenant. Well, and I think you hit it right on the head, JB, when you said that dispensational theology is not about salvation. And that's a straw man argument that a lot of people that attack dispensational theology actually gets tiresome. Um, you know, because you hear you have people come up like they've just found something new. Hey, dispensational theology is is has different ways of salvation. No, 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 no. Um, Galatians three makes that abundantly clear that, you know, Abraham was was saved by faith, just like us. Um, so dispensationalists, I, I've never have you ever met anybody that actually teaches that? I, I don't. I've never met it. me. You might have. No, uh, I, 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 I haven't. But I know where that misnomer originated and it originated from an, an unfortunately poorly worded note in the original 1917 edition of the Schofield Reference Bible. And as part of my PhD studies years ago, almost 20 years ago now since I graduated, hard to believe it's been that long, more than 20 years. You're getting old. I started. Yeah, I am old. Fortunately, I don't look old like you, but I'm getting old. Um, <laughs> but uh, anyway, in that original 1917 edition, I, I had to, in my doctoral studies, I had to go back and read every note in the original 1917 edition of the Schofield Reference Bible and compare it to the revised edition, which I think was 1950-something. I can the date, exact date escapes me, but that's the one that we have now. Uh, Walvard kind of helped uh, lead the editing process for that, John Walvard from Dallas Seminary. Anyway, he, he there was a, a note there in the Old Testament that, you know, if if not really understood within the broader context of everything Schofield wrote and said, you might take in isolation as suggesting that Old Testament saints were saved by works and New Testament uh, people were saved by faith. Uh, but other than that, and that, that kind of people will point to that, uh, but you're right, it's it's no no dispensationalist that I know, certainly not Ryrie, who I knew personally and worked with many times, uh, many of the other great dispensationalists of our time, like uh, Howard Hendricks, uh, uh, J. Dwight Pentecost, um, you know, John Walvoord, uh, all, all the others. Uh, nobody teaches that. Alvin McLean, uh, those guys, uh, they understand that salvation is always by faith. Abraham believed God and was declared righteous, and that's yeah. what we have to do uh, uh, today. Well, and in covenant, to go back to your question um, with covenant theology, and you forgot two names on that list, by the way, J.B. Hickson and Mark Fontecchio. Well, yeah, um, well, I, I, did, I forgot one of them anyway. <laughs> <laughs> no, but, um, you know, in covenant theology, just for those that aren't aware, um, we believe in, in the biblical covenants. We absolutely hold to the biblical covenants that God gave in the Old Testament for the nation of Israel. Um, we hold to those mightily, but um, the covenant theology has these theological constructs that are more presupposition than anything. It's just this theological workup where they they say there was two biblical covenants in the past. Um, and 
sometimes some they most of them at least hold to the covenants of works and grace because there's some that hold to a third but um so they have these theological covenants that they kind of say that god is working through and they're not outlined in scripture they're more kind of uh, just a theological construct as we said so um we we see it differently we we hold to the biblical covenants that are outlined in in scripture and those biblical con uh, covenants I actually would hold to those and say that those are essentials to the faith, too. Yeah. And so what we mean by that, and I, I've talked about this at length, if you watched my recent 80 uh, something part series, it lasted two years uh, on what lies ahead, loosely following the outline in our book by the same title. Uh, you you know, I spent several weeks talking about this, but the biblical covenants are uh, Genesis 12, the Abrahamic covenant, where God promises to Abraham unconditionally uh, land, seed, and blessing that will be, uh, you know, geographically cover the face of the earth. Um, and then he, over time, again, going back to what Mark said about the progress of Revelation, God amplified that covenant and those three elements of it, land, seed, and blessing, through three subsequent covenants, uh, starting with, first of all, the uh, the uh, uh, land covenant, uh, which he reiterated later on in Genesis chapter 15 by giving the specific boundaries of the land that Israel would inhabit someday, which, by the way, to this day, they've never inhabited it. I have a chart in the Not By Works book of uh, uh, theological charts, diagrams, and illustrations that shows modern-day Israel and then the boundaries of the promised land. And they've they've had the rights to it before in Joshua's day, but uh, as Scripture tells us, but they've never inhabited it all. So we know that's got to be... A, fulfilled in the future, or God's a liar, and that's not an option. So uh, the land covenant, Genesis 15, and then also Deuteronomy 30, uh, you know, in the giving of the law, expounded upon the land aspect of the of the promise. And then we had the uh, seed promise from Abraham amplified in the life of King David with the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And then we have the uh, finally the new covenant, which was promised uh, during the Babylonian exile of time period through the prophet Jeremiah, Jeremiah 31. And uh, and then, of course, the new covenant was um, ratified at Calvary with the shed blood of the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. So those four biblical covenants are foundational. They are non-negotiable, as Mark said. The Abrahamic covenant, the land covenant, the Davidic covenant, and the new covenant. And all of those covenants will come to fruition and fulfillment one day in the kingdom when Christ comes back. And then right away at that point, somebody will ask, well, what about the Mosaic covenant? What about the Mosaic covenant? And I think we need to recognize that the Mosaic covenant, again, for Israel was not really about um, what God's going to be. Some, some parts do speak to it, of course, about the future, but um, it's, it's really about fellowship with God for the nation of Israel, how they as a nation were going to interact with God as a nation and with one another. And, and certainly we see a parallel teaching with the church, right? First John, um, we see that in, in first John chapter one about how we're to have fellowship with one another. So you kind of see that, 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 that's not really, and, and, and it's amazing to me, JB, how many people think that the Mosaic covenant somehow had something to do with salvation, right? You know, if we, and it has nothing to do with that at all. Yeah, so the, the four covenants that we mentioned a moment ago, the Abrahamic, which is the foundational one, and then the land covenant, the Davidic covenant, the new covenant, those are all unconditional covenants in Scripture. They are I will statements where God says, 
I will do this. Their fulfillment depends solely upon the one making the covenant, in this case, the eternal creator of the universe. The Mosaic covenant is different because it is not an I will statement. It's an if you will, then I will. It's a conditional covenant. It it lays down kind of parameters for blessing and cursing and how, you know, if you do this, then it'll go well with you. If you don't, you're going to have discipline. And so, yeah, the parallels to the Christian life are uh, quite striking because we are saved unconditionally uh, through the promise of Christ by grace through faith. We have to receive that gift, right? Yeah, you know, yeah. Calvinists teach you don't have a choice in the matter. Um, you know, they're, they're, they're kind of like the old, uh, uh, you know, Model T Ford when it first came out. You could have any color you want as long as it's black. You know, that was the, that was the thing. You really didn't have a choice. So uh, we believe you do have a choice uh, that uh, in the same way that Adam and Eve were given free will in the garden and they could choose to sin, choose to rebel against the holy God and eat the forbidden fruit, or they could not. In the same way, once they fell by sin and God pr provided a way out, uh, through uh, the sacrifice, ultimately the Lamb of God, uh, Christ himself, they they have the option to believe it. So salvation is not forced upon anybody. It's a free gift, but you do have to believe it. And then once you believe it, it's, it's eternally secure. Nothing you can do can change that. And yet God has given us some general rules for fellowship, just as he did for Israel, that will help us, uh, you know, find earthly blessing. It'll help us avoid the death-dealing consequences of sin. It'll bring eternal rewards at the Bema judgment someday. There are lots of, uh, you know, blessings that come from abiding in Christ, as Jesus told the disciples to do in John 15, and as John the Apostle later told all believers to do in his epistles. So, yeah, uh, the covenants are definitely foundational, uh, and when properly understood, they really are non-negotiable. They are. And so, you know, if you're out there looking for a church, these are things you want to be looking for. Um, I know for me, I have another one, JB, that I'm sure you're going to agree with because we do think so much alike. But um, <laughs> <laughs> um, I just for me, it's another non-negotiable about the timing of the rapture. I, I just do not see how it can be anything else in Scripture other than the pre-trib rapture. Um, and, and that's hard. I understand there's a lot of, of people that have taken other positions. And so they kind of feel like they've built their case and they kind of feel, and a lot of people feel passionately about different positions, but, um, it's something that, you know, for myself, I was taught it years ago on my undergraduate work when I was at Moody Bible Institute. And I, I didn't, I didn't buy it right away just because I wanted to see it for myself, but, mm -hmm this is a, a doctrine that I have come to see in scripture that when you start narrowing down different passages and it takes some time, you really have to take the time to work through these different passages. But as you do, you start to see that one by one, they start, well, let me give you an example. I believe with all my heart that Matthew 25 eliminates the post-trib rapture, um, that the, the rapture could be afterwards. Um, because they're already, you already have the sheep on the right and the goats on the left in verse 33. And so he's dividing up there, the believers. And he, and the, the basis is um, he's saying what you did to the least of these, my brother. And in verse 40, well, who's that? That's the Jewish, Jewish believers spreading the gospel in the kingdom of the kingdom in, in the tribulation. Um, and so I just think it's another example that why would, uh, why would they need to be divided up here in Matthew 25 if the post-trib, meaning just simply that 
the rapture is after the tribulation, after the seven years. Why would they need to be divided up if they were already divided up at the rapture? It, it, it doesn't make any sense. It's nonsensical. Yeah, I mean, I I would be a little bit stronger even maybe. And I know you're trying to be gracious, as we should always be. But uh, there is a you know wide diversity of views on the doctrine of the rapture day in terms of the timing of it. Um, but when you go back to your hermeneutic and your understanding of the distinction between Israel and the church, there really is no other option because the, the tribulation period, that seven-year future period, is the final seven-year period that was prophesied for Israel in a 490-year plan that God gave them through the prophet Daniel. And the church had no part to play in the first 483 years, and so they, of course, have no part to play in the final seven years. This final seven years was delayed, as it, Daniel told us it would be, but he never indicated that there would be new parties to this covenant or this promise, if you will, from God, this prophecy. So, you know, the church is not mentioned after chapter 3 in the book of Revelation. You don't see it at all in the whole detailing there of chapter 6 to 18 of that seven-year period. Uh, the church, you know, it's it's a time that's called the time of Jacob's trouble in Deuteronomy 30, verse 7. Uh, Jacob meaning Israel, of course. Jacob's name was changed to Israel. Uh, you have 144,000 Jewish witnesses whose job it is to share the gospel throughout the seven-year period, again, indicating the centrality of Israel in that seven-year period. You've got the two witnesses. You've got the abomination of desolation, which is the desecration of the Jewish temple by the Antichrist. You've got the, you know, the restoring of the uh, sacrificial system. The whole thing in the tribulation is about Israel. The church has no role to play in it unless you think that the church is Israel. And uh, in, in which case, uh, you, you, you tend to put the rapture and the second coming as the same event. So for me, uh, pre-tribulationalism is pretty much a non-negotiable. Now, I'm going to still you know, fellowship with and talk with and have good-natured discussions with people who disagree, because I'm aware, as you alluded to, that in these days, there's a lot of confusion about it. There's been a lot of bad teaching about it. Um, you know, dispensational pre-tribulationalism is the, you know, the minority view, uh, let's be honest. But like I said, Tuesday night in my prophecy night, you know, sometimes uh, the majority just means all the fools are on the same side. No, no, no uh, offense intended. But uh, so, you know, I, I, I understand that there are differing views, but I think if people will just let this, the text speak for itself, study the word of God, uh, they'll come to that conclusion. Another one, and I don't want to steal your thunder here because you may have had some more proof texts for pre-tribulation rapture as well, but another one that is really profound to me is the fact that all of the rapture passages in the New Testament are given in the context of comfort and, uh, you know, comfort one another with these words and th that kind of thing, 1 Thessalonians 4.18. Well, if in fact the church is going to be on the earth during the great day of the Lord's wrath, which is what the Old Testament calls that seven-year period, uh, that is a time of, of God's wrath, um, then how in the world is the rapture comforting? Uh, the, the comfort of the rapture is that we are not going, we are not appointed to suffer wrath, 1 Thess 1.10. We're not, you know, uh, you know, he's going to deliver us from the wrath to come, 1 Thess 5.9. So, uh, you know, that's the comfort. And, you know, it would be silly for Paul to point to the rescuing of the Lord uh, and catching us up in the air as a message of comfort, when especially in First and Second Thessalonians, he's addressing this issue of the coming day of the Lord and the coming judgment of God. 
so I just think it makes no sense. And um, especially if you understand that wrath in Scripture has a prophetic technical meaning, referring to the outpouring of God's wrath through the seal, trumpet, and bold judgments. That's the reason Revelation chapters 4 and 5 uh, ask the question, who is worthy to open the seals? In other words, what gives God the right to pour out his wrath, which is what we're about to see happen in chapter 6 and following? And the answer to that question is the Lamb of God who was slain before the foundation of the world. And because he shed his blood, he then is the one that's worthy to pour out the wrath of God. So I don't, I don't see any way that you can put the church in the tribulation, but we understand that you know, some people disagree. Uh, you know, we'll, we should always be gracious, uh, you know, and loving in, in all of our conversation and interaction. But I tend to have, you know, pretty strong feelings about that because it's so foundational to the whole biblical understanding of the end times. It's the blessed hope. It, yeah. it is the blessed hope that we started with today. And I, I agree. And I think um, Daniel 9, one of the things that you know, there's other views out there, not just pre-trib and post-trib, but mid-trib and all those that when people try to try to put the rapture in the middle of the tribulation or anywhere in the middle of those seven years, I, um, it, it just doesn't make any sense. Because, again, you're as you well pointed out, you're looking at this whole thing and saying, wait a minute. Now, part of this is for the church and part of this is for the nation of Israel. Well, the, the church was a mystery, Paul says in Ephesians. The church was not spoken of in the Old Testament. So um, it's allowed for, as we would say, but it's not directly mentioned, directly referenced in the Old Testament. So um, I, I just think it's a fundamental misunderstanding of, of Daniel 9. I also think that uh, when you start looking at some of those passages, as you were mentioning, 1 Thessalonians 1, 110, uh, you know, it, it says into he was praising the church at Thessalonica because they and he Paul said, and you're waiting for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. He's praising because they're waiting for Jesus, you know, or we mentioned Titus about the blessed hope, as you so well mentioned, that is not uh, words of comfort. And I think what happens is if you don't really understand the death and the pure carnage of revelation that's going to happen during the tribulation, you really, uh, I don't, you're not understanding, I guess, how these could be words of comfort because it's death, it's disease, it's famine, it's, it's all those things. Yeah. And again, you know, I, it just occurred to me as I was, you know, sitting here uh, uh, thinking about this, that, uh, you know, I've spoken in churches before uh, doing conferences that, you know, hold different views on the rapture. Uh, and we've got some speaking engagements coming up. That's the case. And so, you know, I understand that people are still working through this issue. They've been taught different views. And uh, and and so we, we, we respectfully disagree. But uh, it's not something that I would say invokes the doctrine of separation. But certainly within the realm of end times uh, theology, it is something that I'm not uh, open to debate. It's it's pretty clear in Scripture to me. Yeah, same here for me, JB. And I think it comes to the point, you know, if I was in the middle of uh, a small town and there was no other church and the, the pastor was post-trib and my family and I were looking for a church, well, maybe. If all the other doctrines checked out, well, well, maybe. Um, but I, I would say that I would instruct my children and, and my family that uh, when it comes to the end times, if somebody's teaching post-trib, I'm probably not going to listen to them just because to me, it, it it's a non-starter. It's not, it's just a non-starter. And, and again, I don't, as you mentioned, I don't uh, want to 
um, attack anybody's motives or anything like that, but you certainly do um, see the problems with it. It just does not add up. Yeah, for sure. Well, so we've covered a lot of ground today. I want to remind folks that uh, they can go to uh, notbyworks.org slash what lies ahead, all one word, uh, or right there on the homepage, we have a banner uh, that you can cycle through and see. And that's where you can find the book, What Lies Ahead, A Biblical Overview of the End Times. It's, uh, I think, 16 chapters, 350 pages. It's got, I don't know, 15 or 20 different charts and graphs in it, excellent scripture index. Uh, and I think it's just a great overview that deals with some of the differing views on uh, on the end times. And so uh, we're probably about out of time, but any uh, more, one or two maybe that you want to talk about on your list of end times non-negotiables? I, I didn't have too many more on my, uh, my list here for non-negotiables because I think those are good starting points. Um, just to be honest, I think those are all good starting points. You can go down, as you mentioned, to, to the finer details, like timing of Gog and Magog and all these kind of different things when the two witnesses come onto the scene and all these, you can debate those kind of things. But I think if, if a church is teaching these doctrines, I would feel comfortable with my family sitting underneath the teaching of, of the pastor of that church. Um, and I, these are the main ones that I see in scripture. Awesome. Um, well, Mark, it's always been, uh, just been great to, to talk with you as always. Um, and, uh, you know, God's doing some neat things through uh, your ministry. I know you've got, uh, you know, uh, just your podcast ministry that's reaching people all over the world. Obviously, Pioneer Baptist up there is just an amazing church. And you really are a, a, a beacon in an otherwise pretty dark wasteland theologically. And uh, I don't mean to disparage uh, our fellow Alaskans, but let's face it, there's just not a lot of solid Bible teaching uh, churches uh, in there. So praise God for you and for Return to the Word. Again, Mark Fontecchio is my guest name. You can go to returntotheword.com to learn more about him. Um, in the meantime, I want to encourage you to check us out on Sunday at Plum Creek Chapel. Anyone in the greater Denver metro area, come see us. We have worship at 8.30 and 10 o'clock, two of the same services. I preach the same message at both. We live stream the second uh, message, so you can check that out at notbyworks.org slash live stream, or just click the live stream button on our homepage on Sundays. Um, and uh, But until then, I hope everyone has a wonderful weekend. Uh, check out the uh, latest podcasts again, Prophecy Night, Tuesday night, uh, yesterday, World Events Update with uh, Randy. Uh, and, uh, and of course, we will be back again next week with a whole new slate of uh, interviews and topics. And really looking forward to Prophecy Night again next week as we continue our discussion of uh, manifestations of evil spirits. Mark, thanks so much for being with us today. JB, thank you again. It's always an honor to be with you. My pleasure. Well, God bless you, everyone. Have a great rest of the week and into the weekend, and we will see you again soon.